You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey, good to see you guys. Um, Yeah, like Steve said, I kind of grew up similar uh, where like minor prophets were kind of just like, what are those? (laughs) You know, like we know all the big books of the Bible and and there's like the major prophets that we've all heard of, right? Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Daniel sometimes gets put in there, right? But then there's all these minor prophets. And they're all, just real quick, they're all kind of contemporaries of the major prophets. So if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and if you want Daniel, you'll hear all of this. Like those are the big, and they're usually long. If you ever try to get through like Bible in a year, a lot of people, if you can fight through Leviticus, which is, it's really good, but if you can fight through it, then you get to Isaiah, and that's usually where you break, right? (laughs) Usually it's like, you know, you get into chapter like 50, and you're like, I'm done, you know? Um, So it's so good, but these are kind of the smaller prophets. So real quick, um, so Christy, my wife, made a graphic. Um, So that's not a map of like actually anything, but she's so creative. Um, So this is kind of the timeline of actually our Minor Prophets series that we're going to do. So last year, or last year, last Sunday, it felt like a year ago, um, was Jonah. Randall brought Jonah. And uh, so you can kind of see there that those are the the times and and the dates of it. The only weird one, just to, to show you real quick so you're not confused, uh, if you go over to Obadiah, uh, scholars just, they can't decide, basically, if it was one of the first minor prophets or, or one of the later ones in those two dates. He kind of, the references that he makes there can be either or. So anyway, so we just put it there. Uh, but that's kind of where we're at. So today is Hosea. So has anyone read Hosea before? All right, a couple hundred of you, perfect. Um, so yeah, Hosea, Hosea is an incredible book. Hosea is really, really, really good. Um, and it kind of has this deep narrative that we'll get into that, um, that God actually uniquely uses Hosea uh, in, a, in a strong way. But then the rest of the book, so most people know the story of Hosea, Hosea and Gomer. Um, but uh, the rest of the book is actually super, super rich. So we're going to try to cover the book today. I'm kind of go with this. So stay with me. Get some coffee if you need it. Um, but just real quick, there is a certain time. There is a certain thing we need to understand. So in in Israel and the whole picture of Israel, there were 12 tribes, right? And when they got to the land, and as time went on, they started having differences and stuff. So the land actually split. So there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, okay? So the tribe of Israel kind of split into two, and there were two names. The, the capital of the northern was Samaria, and the, the capital of the southern was Judah, okay? So like a lot of times in the Minor Prophets or whatever, you'll hear references to saying, oh, Samaria, or oh, Judah, and it's kind of just saying northern kingdom, southern kingdom. It would just be weird poetically to say like, oh, northern kingdom, like that sounds weird, right? So it's way more personal than that, okay? The northern kingdom in Samaria, they had this belief that you could still worship God, worship Yahweh, still be considered an Israelite, but you could also worship other gods. And these other gods were kind of just grouped together to be, to be the Baals, B-A-A-L, however you want to say it. I like to say it like you're throwing up a little bit, Baal, right? Um, so they have that, and there's some really cool stories in there about how they tried to worship one or the other and still glean from God, but it just didn't work out. And in the southern kingdom, Judah, that's where Jerusalem is, and they tried to stay faithful to Yahweh alone, Yahweh God. Both kingdoms mess up royally because they are humans, and humans 
are not perfect. Um, but that's the focus of Hosea is primarily on the northern kingdom and how they have these other, this idolatry where they're going to the Baals instead of God. And the focus of Hosea is that idolatry is much like committing adultery. Okay, that's the focus of Hosea. You turning to other gods is like you cheating on the one God. It's like committing adultery in the covenant relationship of this. So that's kind of the big overarching goal of Hosea. But God actually does something unique with Hosea. So he devises this kind of whole experiential plan with Hosea, welcomes him into this, and it's pretty intense. So let's get uh, chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Sorry, I should have said earmuffs, but like obviously they love that word. Um, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim. Okay, so the insinuation here is that Gomer is some sort of prostitute or slept around a bit. Uh, equivalent at the time, but Hosea was to find her, to marry her, and have a God-honoring relationship with her. So God is doing this thing where he actually asks one of his prophets to experience something. He says, hey, I want you to actually experience this for me. Go find someone who's of adultery and marry her, okay? So she bore him three children. Here's the names of the children. Jezreel, no mercy, that's a brutal one, and not my people, not much better, right? That's going to be tough in the school, you know, uh, system they're calling out. So Jezreel, we can't, don't try to get super deep into the nerdiness of the names. Obviously, they all represent something, you know, that wasn't just creative. Uh, Jezreel was a reminder of what was going on at the time, the people's kind of overzealous nature of, of doing what they thought was right in their own eyes and not listening to God. No mercy and not my people were specific for the northern kingdom as of Israel as reminders of how far they've fallen away from God. So obviously these are examples of what was birthed out of this relationship is something that is just not going well. And a lot of times in Hosea you get this narrative of Hosea and Gomer, but then it switches to just let us know that like, hey, remember though, this is talking about the whole nation of Israel and God. This is all supposed to be an example. So listen to God's heart as he's letting Hosea in on this plan. This is chapter 2. It says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in a place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Right? So there will come a time of redemption. But God now is talking to his people who are desiring intimacy, desiring love, desiring belonging, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. They'll find no lover willing or capable to fulfill what they seek, constantly seeking and never finding. So however, this is God's plan. At a certain time, he wants to redeem her. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. 
and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So you can hear God's beautiful narrative in this, where it's like, it's like I've, I've lost someone, I, I've covenant relationship to this adulterous thing, but one day I will redeem. You can hear God's heart in this. But there's still the nature of God's people continuing to give themselves over to other idols as if it were other lovers. And back to Hosea's tragic story, but after their third child is born to them, Gomer leaves him. Gomer leaves and runs away with another man. And this is chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now this isn't another woman. This is still Gomer. So like you hear how impersonal it sounds, go find another woman, another man, like it's just the same old story, right? Gomer has, is so far away from him, it's like she's not his wife anymore. But she's still Hosea's wife, right? So to not only experience her adultery like, like Israel, so Hosea is supposed to experience this adultery like God experiences it from Israel, God also wants Hosea to experience what it's like to be the faithful one to be the one that is waiting. So once again, go, win her over, marry her, be faithful to her. And God gives this analogy of what Hosea is going through. It says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. If any of you had a raisin cake this morning, this is your passage, right? This is your warning. It sounds delicious, actually. Again, God reminds Hosea, this is all illustration of how God feels about his people. So Hosea goes and he actually pays a bride price again for his wife. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. And to use this phrase, many days, is indicate, indicate this is not just like an off and on again relationship. This is how it's going to be. You need to abstain from those sins that have led you away from me. And again, as we see a lot in Hosea, God makes this transition to speak about Israel. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Okay, real quick. So because of Israel's adultery, they are also now to abstain for many days without king or prince. So without like a singular ruler, without sacrifice or pillar, with meaning religious ceremonies, and without ephod or idol. Ephod was the dress that the high priest would wear, um, and the household god was the idol, obviously. So the object of worship. So without king, without ceremony, and without worship. Okay, so you're going to be without king, without ceremony, and without worship. And in those days, if you're a people without those things, what are you? You're just back. You're back to nomadic, just wanderers in the desert. They're, they're simultaneously to be cut off from religious practices and also abstain from idol worship to be reset. And here's the reset goal, chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, 
and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So think about it. What's going to be reestablished? King, ceremony, and worship. But it's all going to be directed to and dedicated to the Lord their God. So there is hope. There's incredible hope. However, as we all know, humans experience consequences of sin, right? And there are consequences to the sin that was committed by Israel. And I think the powerful nature of the book of Hosea is that Hosea experienced deeply what this felt like, what this meant to go find someone that was lost and to bring her in and to marry her and to try to give her what, it, what, what, what he could and then it was ripped away from him and to go back and to bring her back and to keep doing that cycle over and over again. And this is the prophet, Hosea, that God says, now that you know, I want you to go and tell my people to turn back to me. Can you imagine Hosea, just the power of that? This is his story. He knows what it's like to do that. So for the next little bit, we're going to go through the chapters of Hosea speaking to Israel, saying, guys, you don't even know what your sin has brought. There's natural consequences, and then later we'll get to there's actually going to be judgments because of your sin. But we will see in Hosea there is hope. So Hosea prophesies, chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. That bloodshed follows bloodshed is literally like the the blood of different acts is like meeting together, like they're so close together. It's so common and so close together that just horrific acts are happening within you. It's as if one blood of one is literally touching the blood of another. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. All the good things are dried up and gone. There's uh, historically a drought on the land as, they, he's being, as he's prophesying to them. And the animals and the birds and the fish are all going away. Provision wasted away. And the land is suffering. The people had taken what God had given them to flourish and used it as their own to consume while worshiping other gods. Right? So the one true God will show how much they rely on him, whether they knew it or not. The Lord has this analogy for them. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? So a heifer is just like a large cow. (laughs) A huge, like like a large, immovable, stubborn cow. You won't move or listen. How can you expect to be treated like an innocent lamb that's given just lush fields? Right? This is the ancient way, basically, of saying you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So there will be judgment, chapter 5. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him, for he has withdrawn from them. Think about it. Is there a worse judgment? Right? You will seek me and not find me. This is true judgment, foreshadowing an eternal state without God. Taste for a time as if there was no God. But as we're seeing in this, in this pattern, there's natural judgment, there's consequences of sin, but it's not abandonment forever. There's always a chance for redemption. 
I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. There will be a time when God will relent, where God will listen, but it will take action on their part of repentance and turning to him. So Hosea, he urges Israel. He's urging them. He's like, guys, I know this. I experienced this with Gomer. Listen to me. Chapter six, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. That language of just in the drought to just be lavished. God, let's turn to God and he will rain down his mercy. Right? This should, they should be hungry for this. They should be wanting this. But Israel prays nothing like this. And the Lord continues through Hosea. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. So remember real quick, Ephraim is a part of the northern tribe, the northern kingdom. Ephraim is actually a tribe, but often it's used to just describe the entire northern kingdom, okay? So if they say, why, why northern kingdom? What shall I do with you? What shall I do with you? Southern kingdom, right? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away. It's like he's picking out his two sons, right? representing the two kingdoms. Oh, Ephraim and Judah, what am I going to do with you? If you have children, have you ever, <laughs> have you ever done that? What am I going to do with you guys? And then maybe clanking their heads together a little bit. No, just kidding. Right? It's good for a time, but then you just go away, and I find nothing from you. You think you can just win me back with good behavior, with good talk. You can just woo the God of the universe. But here's what God says. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I want relationship with you, steadfast love and knowledge of one another. It's what I've always wanted from the dawn of time. So it's no surprise that the Lord brings back the OG of all of this that's happening. Chapter 6, verse 7. But like Adam, he goes all the way back, they transgress the covenant. There they dealt falsely or faithlessly with me. Just like Adam, knowing God, knowing that God forbid the eating of the fruit, gave in. Just like Gomer knew what she was doing when she left Hosea and returned to her adulterous life. And now, just like the people of God, consistently breaking covenant with Yahweh. But here's the rub. There have not been without opportunities to change. The Lord desires to heal. And here's the problem. Chapter 7, verse 1. When I would heal Israel, when I want to, when I would go, it just revealed more bad stuff. When I actually came to you, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. But here's what they don't realize. They do not consider, I remember all their evil. Now, I think it would do well for us to pause here, right? We're not unlike Israel in that we, we have sin that we try to cover up or try to heap good behaviors on top of, or, or we, we don't always just repent, 
right? We have times we believe God should reward us for good behavior, and we have times we probably understand a punishment, right? But the fact of the matter is that this is the same God today as we're reading about, right, in Hosea. But God could tell you even more evil in your thoughts and your hearts than you ever know is possible in our minds. So it can't be about just good behavior. It has to be a full turning and repentance to him. And God is an absolute wizard with the analogies. 7.4 says, They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Doesn't that just hit you? On a deep level, all the bakers in here are just are just floored, right? Okay, it's a little confusing. It's a striking metaphor, right? The people of God are like these heated ovens in their lust, right? They burn with such unquenchable passion in their adultery. They're so hot, in fact, that without someone tending the heat and stoking the fire and trying to keep the heat going, that the oven is still ready to bake when by the time the dough has rise. Like, if you don't get the analogy, it's totally fine. <laughs> it's a pretty old one. But it's just, it's basically, it's overheated with little to no self-control. That's, that's the idea, okay? So, sorry, teenagers, it's, you know, it's kind of like that. This is a recipe for disaster, right? And you see this tension. It's not destruction that God wants, but it's happening because the people keep going away from him. 7.13, he says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me, Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. He, re- he would redeem them, but they don't want it. They don't love God more than they love their sin. So now we get up to chapters 8 and chapter through 10, which is all about the punishment that is coming. Because of your natural consequences of sin, these are the ways, this is how it's been, this is the relation, where the relationship is at. Now there are some punishments coming. Right, Hosea has been speaking about this, so of what's naturally happened, but now God is here. Chapter 8, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Two things about that real quick, kind of cool writing. So one is the, like the vulture is kind of that idea that probably came to your head that like it's almost like there's dead carcasses here. You guys are so dead that vultures are here ready to pounce. There's also a deeper meaning that um, the one like a vulture often gets translated one like an eagle. An eagle often represented Assyria. And Assyria was this big, bad kingdom, this big, powerful place that was going to come. And we'll see later that they're actually the ones that come in and take over Israel and bring them into exile, which is a different story. But it's kind of interesting there, kind of a double entendre there. There's a warning, basically, of coming disaster, right? And in the Old Testament, we see this, where God's judgment often comes from a different nation coming in and bringing the people and wrecking everything they have to kind of, again, break them down so that he can rebuild out of the remnant. So the Lord, through Hosea, he produces now one of the most metal lines ever. I love this line. Chapter 8, verse 7, memorize it. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It's just so epic. I just, a little guitar riff, anybody? No, maybe later. The wind is supposed to represent their sin, right? And the whirlwind is the wrath of God that's due because of that sin, right? It's so, and that part of that whirlwind is to reap no harvest. Look at this. 
The standing grain has no head, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, even strangers would come and devour it. He goes further, he says, Israel is reduced to something like broken pottery. Israel is swallowed up. Already they're among the nations as a useless vessel. They don't even know the Lord anymore. His ways have seemed strange to them. Following his commandments are foreign to them now. God says, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Like This is significant. God is really mad with his people right? If I were to give you my, my commands, even 10,000, uh, uh, not, not just like 10,000 commands, because that sounds ex- exhausting, but just the idea of saying, I would just give this to you over and over and over again, 10,000 times over, it would be like something strange. This was, if you go back to the garden state or the, the desert, like this is what the people are supposed to be committed to, and now it's a strange So God's, he's pretty mad. It looks quite bleak for a while, and probably the best summarizing sentence we get in chapter 9, verse 17. Hosea says, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. And here we see God kind of getting to the core of the matter. Chapter 10, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. They must bear their guilt for what they have done. But do you see this? Do you see this change that happens? God's judgment is also God's mercy. Do you see this? The Lord will break down and destroy what has been destroying them. It's judgment. Yes, I will break down your altars. I will break down your pillars but it's also mercy because they are taking you away from me and I want you back. So I will come in and I will destroy them. Now, I love, I love that line, and I don't know if you've heard this line before, but destroy what's destroying you or destroy what destroys you. It's kind of a, a popular phrase, or maybe it's just in my little world. But if you like Google it, you'll see all kind of tattoos and it's just an idea of like whatever's bringing you down. Like you, you got it, you know, take it out, whatever. But if we're trusting, again, willpower, to keep us from sin, we're just, we're always going to fail because it's our own will that keeps taking us back to sin, right? So when, when something has a God-like hold on your life, then only God can remove it and fill that void. That's it. So he says, I'm going to be the one that takes out what is destroying you. But there's also a part to play. Hosea pauses here to help the people with some counsel. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness, Reap steadfast love. Break up your fellow, fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. This is his pump-up cry. It is time. Because so far you've done the exact opposite, and look at what it's got you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice, and you have eaten the fruit of lies. So Hosea concludes with telling them of their inevitable destruction. Everything they've built will now be brought to ruins, concluding, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. And Bethel was like, that is the house of the worship of these calves that they would build, and these calves were the idols that were to the Baals. So saying, even your places of worship, this will will be done to you. And if the book ended here, it would be justified, right? The people messed up. They broke covenant. They tried to keep God as just one of their many gods, 
but in reality they've abandoned God who asked for them to love him with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. And they just wanted the benefits that God could give them. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, okay, I get it. Minor prophets, speaking judgment, people sinned. I get it. You know, it makes sense. And if this were a movie, I would imagine that Hosea, kind of like a father, had just gone on this angry tirade, like just, you know, kind of yelling at Israel, being like, guys, you've got to come back. What are you doing? This is so silly. And he's kicking a trash can over and probably kicking the cat, you know. And then he sits down at the steps and he lets out a yell and then out of his back pocket just like pulls out a Polaroid. I don't know why it's Polaroid, but he has it and he's looking at just his two kids. It's the nation of Israel, right? Because here there's this transition that happens. After this tirade, after this judgment, after this whatever, you kind of get this almost now fatherly sense. Chapter 11, sits down and he reminisces. He says, when Israel was a child, he's looking at this picture, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and, retur- and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Man, he's just remembering, just steeped in like, these are my boys. Like, this was my nation. These are my people. He says, and now they're not even coming home anymore. 11.5. He said, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to, <coughs> excuse me, to return to me. I love them. I gave them everything, but they're going away for a time. I have to let them Go. They've given me every reason to abandon them, and yet, this is powerful, 11.8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? This is key. Burn this into your just theology and your memory. If you are ever at a low point, just at a point where you're just steeped in just whatever, your sin or your feelings or guilt or whatever, just be in there. Be like, even at your lowest point, this is us. God's holding that Polaroid of you, right? Saying, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? It's not in my nature to abandon forever. I want you with me. In fact, God cannot abandon his children forever. There's always a chance he gives for redemption, right? And we see this pattern. In fact, he says the judgment is coming through Assyria. But in 1110, he says, they shall go after the Lord. One day they shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west, out of exile. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. These are incredible verses, right? As he's sitting here and he kind of is wallowing a little bit and then now bringing it back. And I'm going to roar like a lion and they will come back to me. After exile and judgment, they will return. Trembling is kind of another way of saying humbled. They will be humbled from what they have done. And now they're humble. They'll come to know that I am salvation. They will come back and I will give them back their homes, right? But Hosea he turns back to their present state, and it's not good in the moment, right? He brings to their minds Jacob, 
who cries out and desired to have God's blessing. If you remember this story, we won't get into it, where Jacob wrestled with God. It says he wrestled with a man, but it was later it was obviously like an angelic representation of God, right? And wrestled with him, wanting his blessing so bad. He says, I will not stop wrestling you until you bless me. And that's where the angel like touched his hip socket and went out of joint, you know? So Hosea brings us up. He says in chapter 12, he says, he strove, and Jacob, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Jacob wrestled with God, not relenting until he blessed him. And if you remember the story, what did God change Jacob's name to here? Remember? Someone yelled out? Israel, right? This is, this is the moment. This is crucial. Changed his name to Israel in this story. So listen, the nation of Israel's following suit, wrestling with God, saying, give us, give us your blessing, give us what, not realizing it's okay to wrestle with God, but you've already received the blessing. You're fighting for something you already have and just forgotten. You've just squandered it, right? You already have the inheritance of God, and you've just tried to live your own life, right? Is this not like prodigal son? Like, this is just so rich with Jesus' teaching on the prodigal son, right? But by the help of your God, return, hold fast, and wait. This judgment and your exile will remind you of the blessing you already have been promised but have forgotten. It's you who have forgotten. God did not go away. You're the one who has forgotten. Because here's what God sees. A people who had forgotten who their provider was. A people who needed to be brought low so that they could relearn and be rebuilt up to rely on God again. And what was the most dependent time that any Israelite and, of course, any Bible reader in our day would say where the people were fully dependent on God, where they went when he went, they stopped when he stopped, and they ate what he provided them? What would it be? Desert, <laughs> right? Just say, yeah, desert's the right word. Always. It's either Jesus or desert. Just say that. Jesus, desert, garden, right? That's right. The desert years, going back to that, right? Chapter 12, he says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, and I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I'm going to take you back like you're wandering in the desert again, because you forgot. I've given you everything. I gave you land and provision, you have kingdoms, you've grown, you've had so much, and you have forgotten all about me. And it's necessary here for me to take you back to a desert season, to remind you of what you have been given. And near the end of Hosea's recorded prophecy, amidst all the justice that will be dished out for their iniquity, we get a last look at God's heart for future hope for a people who are going back to this desert state. And these next few lines probably summarize the whole issue at hand. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their hearts were lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. This is the classic issue. God lavishly blessed his people with riches in his mercy and grace, and they abused his goodness. They took it and consumed it. 
They took the blessing, took it to be their own doing, to forgot who blessed them in the first place. And if there was a verse to memorize or to have as a warning for our own lives, like this is it. It's so easy for us to let this happen. We have to learn from this example over and over again to turn from ourselves, repent of the ways we've robbed God and claim to be our own provider. It's only what he could ever have given us. Because even though this feels like this circle has been go- this cycle has been going on forever since Adam, it does not have to be our eternity. Right? There's a reality where we can all be changed. We can be saved from eternally falling from God. Look at this, chapter 13, 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Right? The eternal grave will have no say on my people in the end. God says, I will ransom them. I will redeem them. I will not forget them. I will forgive them. And see, to bring it all together, it's not just enough to say that God likes you for who you are. God made you, so you should just, you know, have him be your God. He says, I, and that's all great, but the gravity is that God's loving you when you were unfaithful. Loving me when I wanted nothing to do with him. Remember last week with Jonah, Jonah, the prophet, he was shocked that God was so slow in his anger, so merciful, and so compassionate on this wicked, wicked city of Nineveh. Today, Hosea's story should shock us on how faithful to the unfaithful God is. Hosea knows what it's like to commit to someone who doesn't want you back, and now he knows how faithful God is to the unfaithful. And guys, throughout this whole series, these prophets are just painting, maybe not a new message, but a deeper depth of understanding of God's incredible love for us. So when it says something like, because of that unconditional love for you and me, that is what I sent my son Jesus Christ for. God, through Christ Jesus, released us from that bondage of sin. Death, the debt that sin had on our life, has been paid and removed through the life of Jesus. He redeemed us from our unfaithfulness, just like Hosea redeemed Gomer. And we know what this paid debt looks like. It looks like God's own flesh up on the cross for you and for me, redeeming us from death by becoming our death so that through his new life we would have eternal life. See, the thing is, and it's true that he likes you, God likes you, but he doesn't just like you for who you are. He loves you unconditionally. He is committed to you covenantally. He loves you enough to go to lengths of securing eternity with you even while we were still sinners. That is why it is a gift of grace and not of our own doing. And I want to end with the the Apostle Paul. He actually quotes the end of Hosea in this beautiful chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. He talks of this victory we have in Christ, in his death, which brings about our resurrection, this eternal state that this cycle doesn't have to keep repeating. So 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, our, our labor is not vain in Christ. It's tempting and it's hard for our flesh to not go towards those ways of sin. But we learn things like this. We're in a covenant relationship with God and say, I do not want to turn to other idols. I want to be faithful to you, God. And that let us be a people of God who remember these stories and prophets of old, refusing to repeat the same mistakes over and over, choose to turn to God and dedicate our lives to him for the work of the ministry that he has for each of us. And we'll realize he is going to bless us greatly. We cannot forget that blessing. So let's pray. Let's, let's respond to that God today and remember the story of Hosea. Let me pray.